This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the midst of Season 7. My name is David Dalt, and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend Dan Horan. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is the Duns Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Dan. Hey, David. Good to see you as always. And I'm here as well with my friend Heidi Schlumpf, executive editor of National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Heidi. Good to see you guys. We are, as always, here to talk about news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. There's a lot to talk about this week. But before we get into that, Heidi, how have you been? I'm doing great. Fall is here in Chicago and the leaves are everywhere and we're enjoying this great weather. And Dan, how are you doing? I'm also enjoying the weather. As as regular listeners to the Francis Effect know, I'm a runner, and this is my favorite time of year where it starts to get just cool enough that you need to, to wear a longer sleeve shirt and maybe a hat and some gloves, but it's still warm enough that you don't have to worry about slipping on the ice, and so it's a great combo. And we're hitting the midway of our semester here at CTU, which is hard to believe. Half of the term is already over. And yeah, it's flying by. This is the weirdest year, uh, certainly of my life, and I know probably of almost everybody listening to this is life as well, in that every day feels like an eternity, and then the year itself or any kind of aggregate of time feels like it just happened in a split second. So I don't know what to make of that. Maybe Einstein was right all along. It means that you're old, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) That is also true. (laughs) I'm not getting any younger. (laughs) How are you doing, David? Well, good. We had an event here in the Dalt household. Over the weekend, we had a catastrophe with our washing machine. Oh, no. We were running it, and it has been making noise, but then on Sunday... It was running with some sheets and towels in it, and it ended up walking about a foot and a half forward. And so my wife, Kira, went online and found out some information, and we ended up on Monday taking almost the whole day. We took the washing machine apart, came to find out that there's, I didn't know this, there's a concrete weight that is bolted to the bottom of the spin drum on a washing machine. And that concrete weight had completely come off. And so we ended up having to rebuild a way for that concrete weight to stay on and all of that. And then we ended up uh, testing the washing machine and it runs better than it ever has. So uh, my hat is off to Kira for figuring out how to fix this problem. And I just kind of cleaned some things and lifted some heavy things as and as we were getting in there and doing that. So I'm very, very grateful for that and for the support of our family <laughs> as we went through this trying time. But uh, I think a lot of people are faced with these kinds of dilemmas. When you have something major in your house break, do you figure out how to fix it yourself? Do you risk having somebody come in? Do you have the money even to have somebody come in and, and fix it? So we're glad that that things came through the way that they did. But every time that I do a load of laundry now, I'm kind of crossing my fingers because I'm not sure what's going to go wrong next. It seems like you've got the uh, the makings of a new Pixar movie about animated appliances that move around when the humans are looking the other way. It looked pretty much like a cartoon character as it was scooting across the floor when we when we figured out what was happening. It was it was our jaws kind of were also on the floor at the moment. And but uh, I'm happy to report that there's a, a silver lining at least in this story. But this is not the first appliance we've had break during the pandemic. So we're 
we're waiting to see what other shoes drop. But uh, I know that I know that there's a lot of folks out there listening who are in similar sorts of situations where they're having to figure out what to do and how to balance these kinds of things. And so I just want to say to listeners, I see you and I'm praying for you. And I hope that things are are well wherever you are, where you're listening. Today on the show, we've got three topics we're going to be getting into. We're going to be talking about the election because we've got to, uh, because a lot of things are happening. We're also going to be talking about some a recent thing in the news that didn't get as much coverage as it maybe should have. And Heidi and I were talking about, about this a little bit before we started the episode today about the Michigan militia that has been involved in a plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And then we're going to round out the show by talking about Fratelli Tutti, the recent encyclical from Pope Francis. So you're listening to The Francis Effect, and we're glad that you're here. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. We're recording this podcast 19 days before Election Day. By the time that it drops, it'll be only 13 days until the big day. It goes without saying that this is likely the most consequential election of our lifetimes, and one of the most consequential in the history of the country, and it is an election like no other in so many ways. First, the coronavirus pandemic has meant more voters than ever are choosing to vote by mail, and one of the candidates, President Donald Trump, is just recovering from COVID-19. The virus is affecting campaigning, the debates, and may affect turnout. Next, a Supreme Court nominee is in the middle of confirmation hearings, with the plan by the president and the Republicans in the Senate to have her confirmed just before the election, in case the court is needed to decide the results. That nominee, Catholic Amy Coney Barrett, refused to say whether she would recuse herself from such a decision. And finally, the current resident of the White House has refused to say he will vacate the office if he loses the election, leading many to be concerned about chaos or even violence on or after November 3rd. Yet polls are increasingly showing that Democrat Joe Biden is leading, not only nationally, but in important swing states. According to Nate Silver at 538, Biden has a 10 percentage point lead nationally, and polls show the former vice president winning in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and possibly even Arizona. Heidi, what are polls showing about Catholic voters, and how important will the Catholic vote be? Well, I can tell you that this Catholic voted yesterday. It was the first day voting in Illinois, so a lot of people were dropping off their mail-in votes while I stood in line and voted in person. There's some new research out this week, just a couple days ago, from the Pew Research Center that is showing that Donald Trump continues to lead among white Christians, so white evangelicals and white Catholics. But all other religious groups and non-religious folks are going for Biden. So the Catholic data breaks down like this. It's It continues to be what we've seen in the past, in the past election and also throughout these campaign. So while Catholics overall are going for Biden, and it was 51% for Biden, 44% for Trump, And Hispanic Catholics were strongly for Biden at 67%, but white Catholics were still favoring Trump. So what's interesting is that 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 gap, so white Catholics 52 to 44 for Biden, is an eight percentage point difference. And that has narrowed because earlier this summer, it was 19 percentage points. So the president is losing some of his support from white Catholics. And I'm trying to, I thought it'd be interesting to speculate why we think that might be true. I think the coronavirus is really hitting home for people. It's getting worse in a number of states. And certainly the the president himself contracting the virus and some of the crazy things he's done since he's been sick, I think have really caused people to pause and think, do we really want years and years of this? I think that that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm wondering, and I want to ask this to you, Dan, the coronavirus has really shown us that life issues are more than just abortion. And it's really put that in stark relief. And I'm wondering, in your estimation, is that making a difference with some of these Catholic voters? Or is there still that hardcore of abortion only as the issue that would be the kind of dividing point here? 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a good question. And I don't know that you or our listeners will be happy with my answer because here I rely on excellent uh, pollsters and, and uh, an- analysts of political polls. So you mentioned Nate Silver, the chief pollster for 538.com. There's Nate Cohen over at the New York Times. I, I don't know what it is about guys named Nate who seem to go into statistician work. But you know, one of the things that is consistently clear is that actually some of the polling is almost immaterial when it comes to the category of religious affiliation, particularly for Catholics, because if you take the Catholic moniker away or the Catholic sort of demographic box tick away, Catholics vote just like the rest of their respective demographics in across the, the spectrum. So at least with regard to Catholics, this may not be true, and I suspect it's probably not true when it comes to evangelicals and certain other religious communities. But as far as Catholics in the United States go, and I think Heidi highlighted this well with with that kind of latest polling information where... You know, again, white Catholics, if you narrow it down, well, what's distinctive there is not about the Catholic moniker or the Catholic qualifier anymore. It's it's about, the, you know, the racial categorization or demographic. And so if you look at, you know, Latino or, or Latinx Catholics, they're voting by and large or responding to these polls in a way representative of non-Catholic Latinos, Latinas. The same thing is true across the board regardless of you know when you include gender race social class these sorts of things so uh, so i say that because i uh, first and foremost i think we make too much at times of polling about the catholic population that's one thing on the other hand no david i don't think actually life issues beyond the narrowly dis- kind of focused abortion issue for many people who associate the term pro-life as a synonym for anti-abortion. I don't quite frankly think that's broken through for a reason very similar to why I don't think the Catholic qualifier in polling is very significant. And that is because people who identify with pro-life and understand it as a kind of personal characteristic or or political identity as exclusively anti-abortion or prominently anti-abortion, I don't think they're swayed by climate change or the pandemic or anything else. For them, they're a one-issue group. And then as for everybody else, I think it's the same thing that we just talked about, that I think the rest of Catholics are not tuning into, you know, they're already disenfranchised from pro-life conversations because the anti-abortion wing of that group has been so dominant and quietly, and, and quite frankly, so offensive. I don't know what other word to say. I mean, they, they, it's really quite quite difficult to wade into. So I want to make sure that I'm hearing right from both you and Heidi about this. So what I'm hearing in the conversation so far is that there is a there's a core of voters for Trump and being white is an important factor for them. Being Catholic or evangelical is a descriptor for them, but that's not really the decisive factor. It just happens to be a correlation, but not a causation, because they happen to be Catholic, but they're really not voting based on anything that the wider Catholic Church or that other Catholics are doing. Am I hearing that right? Yes, exactly. That Catholics, by and large, vote the way that people in similar demographic groups that are non-Catholic also vote, typically. You know, another thing that I found interesting is that even in polling that's just of Catholics, so there was an EWTN poll of about 1,200 Catholics um, a couple weeks ago, when they were asked what the top issues were that concerned them, abortion wasn't even in the top 10. So the top issues were the economy and jobs, health care, coronavirus, national security. So you know, religious liberty and abortion were didn't even make the graphic, you know, because they were so down the list. But we hear so much about that because for the pe- for the subset of people for whom they are important, they have a lot of money. They're very loud. They're very good at at dominating the media mass media message. And maybe you can answer this question for me because I'm always a little confused. Are these polls tracking the popular vote or are they tracking the Electoral College or is it a little bit of both? Yeah. So the national polls that I've been quoting are national polls, so they don't break it down by state. Now, Nate Silver over at 538 has you know, pulls together so much different polling. So there's state polls there, but the state polls are usually not broken down by religious affiliation. So you don't have as much information at the state level. So we have polls that are giving us the fine grain information that we want, but it's not really accurate towards the, the way that the election will be decided. Or we have 
polls that are more accurate towards the way that the election will be decided, but it's not giving us the fine-grained information we want about religious affiliation. Well, I think the other thing to keep in mind, too, when it comes to reading polls is, as you know, other political experts have pointed out, I mean, numerous political experts have pointed out, polls are just snapshots in time. So they, they on the one hand, they they provide us with information and analyzable information. On the other hand, they're not guarantors of anything um, for a variety of reasons. 2016 is case in point. There, you know, across the board, Hillary Clinton held a lead. It was not the same lead that Joe Biden has right now over over President Trump. But it's notable that polls, you know, people said, well, the polls got it wrong. And it's like, well, yes and no. David, to your point, if you're considering just the national kind of snapshot at a given moment about the, you know, the popular vote, well, Hillary Clinton won the 2016 election by more than 3 million votes in the popular vote. I, I do think, and this may be a time for me to just step on and then step off of a soapbox. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I am so fed up of the Electoral College, and I know I'm not alone. I mean, as somebody who prior to the pandemic traveled the world quite frequently into all parts of the world, folks in other countries are genuinely perplexed. I mean, the whole world, for many reasons, looks to the United States, especially during an election year. You know, our influence is so consequential, both positively and negatively. And, you know, without missing a beat, everyone always brings up this electoral college system. And quite frankly, a lot of folks in other countries understand it better than most Americans do, which is a sad state. But it's, it's one of these things where, you know, in what other country, modern country, would the you know a majority of the electorate by 3 million votes pick somebody who then doesn't hold that office it's just very perplexing it's a bit of a side note so I'll step off my soapbox now but I wanted to get in there you know hashtag #abolish the electoral college <laughs> it's undemocratic i believe dan you and i have talked about the electoral college before so i'll i'll put in the show notes a, a link back to that episode where we we go into more depth but there's another aspect of this as well that i think is a factor not only the difference between the popular vote and the electoral college which does need discussion but also the and and Heidi, you've pointed this out many times, that we'll record this episode a few days before the episode releases, and then in the interim, the news cycle completely changes. And so I'm, I'm not paying as close attention to the polls as perhaps the, the two of you are. I'm wondering how these crazy swings in the news cycle are affecting the popular sentiment. Like, are, are these catastrophes that we're having on a near-daily basis, are they having an effect on the way that the population is thinking and voting? Or are we, are we seeing that the catastrophes are happening and it's just disruptive, but it's not actually affecting the trends, the wider trend lines that we're seeing in terms of the sentiment? Well, first of all, a number of people have already voted. So anything that might happen uh, you know, after our show today won't affect their vote because they've already gone or mailed it in. The other thing is that there have been some slight movements, but there are very few undecideds in this election. The The two choices are so starkly different. And I just think there aren't very many pe people who are still sitting here saying, well, I'm going to, you know, watch the debate and see who's, you know, the, the smarter guy or something. So, I, I mean, I think what the the crazy things that keep happening, you know, whether it's Trump getting the coronavirus or something happening with the Supreme Court, they are affecting some broad trends. But I think for the most part, they're just giving people anxiety about like, let's just get this over with since we all just are ready to say what we need to say and then find out what happens. Yeah, that's my sense too. I, you know, I I listen among many other uh, podcasts to actually Five Thirty Eight's political podcast, and and they focus almost exclusively on breaking down and analyzing polling data, which I find very very helpful because there are a lot of excellent journalists, the NPR Politics Podcast, the the Daily from the New York Times, among others, that will give you the the news and, and analysis of the news. But what I like about the Five Thirty Eight reporting is that they're looking at the numbers. And it, it seems to confirm exactly what Heidi's talking about, that there's some movement, but it's within the margin of error. And this is one of those things where, quite frankly, again, I, I'm very, very cautious after the kind of confidence a lot of people, positively and negatively, whether they liked Clinton or liked Trump or not, everyone assumed something was going to go down on November 8th in 2016 that didn't happen. And I think that's still a very real possibility. So I think that caveat is important to name. But I also think, you know, what's significant here, the real test is going to be 
what happens on November 3rd and 4th and 5th. And and this is, I think a better indicator is going to be, are we going to have a situation that is similar to or even worse than the 2000 election in Florida with the recount crisis and the intervention of the court? Are we going to see instances as a result of the pandemic that dampen certain populations in terms of day of voting on November 3rd? Are we going to see legal actions being taken by different political groups or by the candidates' campaigns themselves? Are we going to see voter intimidation or, or voter suppression? You know, and, and it, particularly when you hear some of the rhetoric of, of President Trump when he's calling on his supporters to kind of go physically to the polling sites. I mean, this is against the law. This is against federal law. And anyone who's, who's ever campaigned for a, a, a political candidate before knows on the day of the election, there are down to the inches and feet from the doorway of the polling site, you cannot come within a certain distance and and advocate for a, a candidate and so forth. So, I mean, these are very strict rules. And, and to see these kind of played around with in such a potentially dangerous way, which speaks, I think, to our next topic, when we see the rhetoric that encourages violence or potentially violent behavior, David, I think these are the things that are going to determine a major shift. I don't think, I, I think Heidi is exactly right when she said, I would love to meet one of these elusive, undecided voters at this point in history. I mean, th- they could claim whatever they want. And, and maybe it's out of embarrassment because they're afraid of how they're going to be perceived. I find it totally un- impossible that, that people don't have firm views of both of these candidates at this point. Well, I would just jump in and say that I, too, would not want to make any predictions, especially given what happened uh, in the last presidential election. But I do think the polls are moving a little bit uh, broader trend-wise towards the direction of Biden. And this loss of some of the middle-class white vote, uh, Catholic vote, is, I think, fairly significant and maybe can be attributed to both Biden being more comfortable speaking about his faith his campaign doing a slightly better job uh, reaching out to people of faith. But also there have been some religious leaders who have thought that it's important enough this election cycle to say a few things to maybe give Catholic voters permission to think about some issues other than abortion. So if you missed it, Bishop McElroy from San Diego gave a talk at Notre Dame and St. Mary's last week. And we have the text at ncronline.org, but also a story about it. And the highlights are just that it was about, you know, citizenship and voting and what we need to do after the election. But he he was very strong in criticizing single issue voting, as well as saying, hey, this questioning a candidate's Catholicity just based on one issue is not right either. Um, He very clearly said there is no single issue which in Catholic teaching constitutes a magic bullet that determines a unitary option for faith-filled voting in 2020. And he talked about character and the importance of looking at the candidate, not just the issue. So he said voting for uh, Trump, but also voting for Biden, which is a morally legitimate legitimate. Uh, choice. And a, a number of Catholics, I think, need to hear that and hear it from a bishop to feel like they can make a, a decision based on their informed conscience. That's an important word for us to have as we're heading into the election. And so we want to encourage everybody that's listening, if you haven't voted yet, please vote and pray for what's going to be happening, because we want to make sure that this is bathed not only in civic participation, but also civic prayer. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news, events, culture, and other topics through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. On October 8th, authorities in Michigan, along with federal officials, revealed that they had charged 13 people in an alleged plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Those charged are reportedly part of a militia group called Wolverine Watchmen. No affiliation with the X-Men. According to the FBI's affidavit, the conspirators wanted to create, quote, a society that followed the U.S. Bill of Rights and where they could be self-sufficient, end quote. 
According to reports, the men arrested in Michigan had discussed taking Governor Whitmer to a so-called secure location in Wisconsin to stand trial for treason prior to the November 3rd election. Ms. Whitmer, a Democrat, has become a focal point of conservative anger over measures she has imposed on businesses and residents as she tried to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Allegations against the conspirators include spying on Governor Whitmer's vacation home during the months of August and September, and a plot to storm the Michigan Capitol building in the hopes of inciting a new civil war. Though these reports are very recent, the movements they represent are very far from new. Militia activity of various far-right groups has been part of the Michigan landscape for several decades. David, you wrote a piece for NCR a few months back about your own experience growing up around these kinds of movements. This story about the so-called Wolverine Watchmen seems so over the top. Where should we be focusing on this topic? Yeah, and I, when I talk about this, oftentimes I'll get people in my mentions who are going to try and check my bona fides on this and say I wasn't really a part of the militia movement. My mother uh, grew up and was a member first of the Young Americans for Freedom, later of the John Birch Society, and then she went out to both from, she, she grew up in Michigan, so did my father, and then she went out to Arizona, was involved with a group that later in the 1980s became affiliated with the, uh, the kind of uh, board patrol militias that are there. I grew up with a cache of weapons in my house and was trained in small arms and other types of military tactics. So I I have some connection to these movements, both in the on the national scale, but also on from specifically with Michigan. And one of the things that is important to sort of note about all this is that when we're talking about this, the the kind of normal polarities of politics really break down. We're not talking about a Republican militia group. They tend to have some affinities with with the Republican Party, but they they are much more on the far right, which means that they tend to be maybe anti-government and may be involved, like you'll hear some of the, the militia group's rhetoric kind of going towards ultra-libertarian, but at the same time ultra-authoritarian. And there's also not a complete one-to-one track with things like Nazism and white supremacy, although that's definitely in there for a lot of these groups. And so we're still learning a lot about the Wolverine Watchmen, and as you said, no affiliation with the X-Men or the Watchmen, for that matter, from the comic book world. <laughs> But it's important to kind of think about, and we can get into this, the ways in which this doesn't track with sort of normal or sort of visible right-wing politics. But the other thing that you mentioned, Dan, that's really important to note is that even though these militia groups are becoming more visible and more noted in the news now, particularly in this election cycle, they're by no means a new phenomenon. They have been around since the 1950s, 1960s. They're an entrenched part, particularly of... Michigan politics, but also Illinois politics. So if you think about the Blues Brothers, the I hate Illinois Nazis was not simply a throwaway joke in the Blues Brothers, but there was actually far-right movements in Illinois that were active in the 1970s and 1980s. And if listeners are interested, there is a documentary about Michigan militia movements and its connection to the wider sort of Nazi insurgents and and militia movements. It's It's a movie called Blood in the Face, which came out in 1991. And it documents a rally that was held, a summit of Nazis, skinheads, the Christian identity movement, we can talk about what that is, and militia members at a farm in in central rural Michigan that was owned by a, a pastor, and I'm scare quoting that by the name of Bob Miles. And those who are interested in that documentary, it was one of the first times that you'll hear the voice of Michael Moore, because he was the interviewer of these folks in this documentary. So there's a lot there that we can get into, but that's, you know, that's kind of why I'm very interested in this topic. And I'm wondering, Heidi, did this get the kind of coverage in the news that it should have? Yeah, that's what struck me was that it just sort of seemed like a half day story that not even everybody maybe even heard. I mean, and and what was equally shocking was that the president of the United States did not offer, you know, words of concern or, you know, glad that the the governor, who was very, I thought, strong in her reaction. I mean, I would have been hiding in my closet (laughs) the rest of that day. What I was struck by too, David, with your piece that you wrote for NCR was about how your religious faith helped you to move away from that, that history that you, that you grew up in that was so, so antithetical to Christianity and how I really believe it's so important for our religious leaders now to speak out about this kind of 
violence or expected violence that we're all concerned about, no matter which way the election goes. I appreciate you highlighting that, but I want listeners to know that religious faith is not a guarantor at all that one would come out of these kind of movements or would have a kind of awakening that would that would lead them to think these movements are bad. A moment ago, I mentioned the term Christian identity. And if you go down that rabbit hole, this is an entire branch of Christianity that is connected with a movement called British Israelism. And British Israelism, without going too much into it, is basically the idea that the true Israelite people are white people, and that the King James Bible is the true version of the Bible, and that all of this becomes a way of denying uh, Semitic heritage as valid and as Jewish, and that Jesus really only loves white people. And there's more to say about that, but I mean, that we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. Well, and I think that uh, it's a great segue to the point I wanted to make, which is, you know, for all of President Trump's rhetoric about enemies of the United States, and he picks a different one depending on his, you know, his ratings or his interests or who he has a grudge against at a moment, a consistent thread in the, the Trumpian sort of mindset has been people of color, people of non-Christian religious traditions, people of other nationalities and other countries, particularly those countries in the global South. And there's a a great and, and startling irony, of course, in that. And it goes back to what you were just saying, David, which is According to the FBI, uh, including the FBI director appointed by President Trump, who's currently in office right now, according to the former National Intelligence Director Dan Coats, um, another uh, Trump appointee and served under President Trump, as well as many other uh, intelligence experts, it's it's clear that the greatest domestic threat in the United States is these kind of domestic terror organizations. And that's what they should be called. And that's what they are. I think to Heidi's point about why there hasn't been as much coverage is because these groups are disproportionately, excessively disproportionately composed of people who look a lot like David and me, white men. There are white men in the United States There is a deep-seated sense of misogyny that fuels a lot of this. I think that plays a role in Governor Whitmer as the the target in this particular case. There is, as David pointed out, a, a clear, consistent, even if it's not the primary focus, there is an assumption of white supremacy, even if that isn't is is the case in like the KKK or neo-Nazi organizations, the primary uh, goal, it's something that they're sympathetic to by and large. And David, I think you're right to say that this isn't something limited to, to Michigan. I mean, I went to college in uh, southwestern New York State, just a few miles north of the border of Pennsylvania. And western Pennsylvania and parts of southwest uh, New York are kind of hotbeds for what the Southern Poverty Law Center identifies as neo-Nazi organizations, these kinds of militia groups that, as you rightly said, David, are hard to pinpoint. I mean, you can't really identify them by mainstream political party partisan ideals or kind of ideology. Now, they're very, very disturbed groups, some of which are religious, some of which are not. But I can't help but point, you know, and think about how Trump has inflamed through his rhetoric, through his modeling, through his behavior, through the kind of inciting of and naming of quote unquote enemies that are exactly the the types of people um, demographically, racially, gender identity wise, and so forth, that these militia groups see as threats or take on as as threats that they then self-righteously believe they have a duty to suppress or defend their kind of principles against. It's incredibly frightening. It's disturbing. And if people want to worry about terrorism, forget about you know our Muslim sisters and brothers, forget about those from other countries. I think you need to look at white male Christians in the United States. Well, and you, you touched on this at a couple of points, but it, it's worth noting and sort of carefully expanding. So from a critical standpoint, Donald Trump is oftentimes characterized as giving dog whistles to racists and white supremacists and nationalists. And then the, the media will come back oftentimes and say, but he didn't actually say this, or there's there's deniability. And this is an important point to dig into. If you go back to that documentary that I mentioned, Blood in the Face, at this rally that's held at Bob Miles Farm in rural Michigan. One of the people that's interviewed there says, here's how we do it. We never come out and say 
we're racists. We never come out and say we're white supremacists. Instead, we'll hand somebody a video cassette. And this was back in the 80s when video cassettes was how you how you gave this kind of information. We hand somebody a video cassette and we and we say I just got this, and I'm not sure what to think about it. Why don't you take a look at it, and we'll, we'll talk about it? He said, this is the way we, be, we get them talking about it, and we get them to realize that they have some of these implicit biases already, and we just build on that. And this is a tactic that not only is talked about in in blood in the face but in recent interviews uh, a recent uh, audio documentary about david duke and others this is a tactic that gets used again and again it's subtle but it's effective yeah i just want to jump in to to build on that briefly and then i'm curious what what heidi thinks i mean you're a native midwesterner david and i we're we're carpetbaggers who've come to the midwest from other places but i'll just kind of piggyback on your point there david and say I'm reminded in exactly what you're stating of the famous interview, infamous is what I would describe it, of Lee Atwater, the Republican operative and uh, advisor to Presidents Nixon and Reagan and others, who on tape explained exactly this approach about how, you know, certainly in the post-civil rights era, you can't say the N-word, right? That's the example he uses. He says the N-word multiple times. He said you you used to be able to say this and rally kind of white voters and this sort of thing. Now you say things like, you know, law and order. You say things like crime in urban settings. You say these things that are coded that to white people in particular, particularly those who have affinities with this sort of ideology and white supremacy, will pick up on. You don't need to fill in the blanks. They already know. Yeah. Or you have a president who's out at rallies saying, suburban women, you need to, you know, you should like me. (laughs) Um, And that's barely coded as well. I mean, as a Midwesterner, I've seen it, but it, it also makes me as a city dweller nervous to go out into some of these rural areas. Now, luckily, because of um, coronavirus, we're not doing a lot of travel anyway, but it's always been there. And I think to name it as terrorism is really important. And so I was happy to see that there was a bishop in Michigan. It was uh, Bishop Walter Hurley from the Gaylord Diocese who used that exact phrase saying, these people who were planning to kidnap the governor, it was an egregious acts of terrorism that demonstrate a shocking disregard for the dignity of the human person. And again, just like as in with voting, it does make a difference what message is coming from our religious leaders. It should be said, too, that, of course, the sisters, the Dominican sisters, or uh, the Adrian Dominican sisters from Michigan also um, sent a letter to the governor saying they were glad she was safe. So I'm just going to keep calling for religious leaders to exercise their moral leadership and and say some things about these very important things. We can't let this just be a blip in the, in the news cycle. Well, and you you raise an issue that I think dovetails with another Catholic aspect of this, and that is, you know, Catholics are forbidden from joining secret organizations like the Masons, and there's lots of historical reasons for that. But in a similar fashion, an organization which is trying undercover to coordinate violent efforts against the government or the violent overthrow of a sitting governor or something like that, that is almost by definition against the common good. And it's not its not a legitimate tactic for Catholics to be involved in. It's not a legitimate tactic for really anybody to be involved in. But, but Catholics have specific teachings that forbid us from getting involved in this kind of political activity. And that needs to be highlighted. Well, and I think, you know, you mentioned something that I think we'll come back to in our last segment as well, which is this theme of the common good that is consistently articulated in the church's teaching about the purpose of government. And so there, there again, there is a painful irony in people, again, we don't know what their particular religious affiliation is, but I, there are, as the Southern Poverty Law Center points out, there are these self-identified, quote-unquote, traditional Catholic groups that are also hate groups, oftentimes covers for, for militia organizations in places like Michigan and Wisconsin, Indiana, Pennsylvania, New York, and elsewhere. Uh, Washington State and, and Oregon are also hotbeds for these places. Idaho, there's obviously famous cases there. But you know, one of the things that it's important to remember is that there is no place for people of faith, people of Catholic faith, to empower themselves 
to enforce uh, the government, you know, whatever that means, or to resist the government when the government's purpose is to protect the common, protect and promote the common good, especially when it concerns the most vulnerable. And again, I keep using the word irony because it's counterintuitive here that these groups prioritize, you know, those who are the most powerful, the best situated racially, gender-wise, ideologically in the U.S. context in, in name the perceived enemy is those who are, by definition, the most vulnerable people of color, women in particular, and so forth. And so I, I think, David, you bring up a really, really good point that as people of faith, Catholics in particular, you know, this is a life issue. This is an important issue. And and Catholics who might be tempted to, if not join a militia group, have this sort of ideological preference, really need to put that in check and do some examination of conscience. And for those that are interested in this or want to go deeper, in addition to that documentary that I mentioned, Blood in the Face, there's also a really good book by Catherine Ballou, who's at University of Chicago, called Bringing the War Home, the White Power Movement in Paramilitary America. I can't recommend that that book highly enough. So there's a lot more to say about this topic, but for now, we're going to take a break. And you're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlump. Every couple weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. For only the third time in his pontificate, Pope Francis has issued a new encyclical letter. On October 3rd, the Franciscan Order's feast day of the Transitus, which commemorates the death of St. Francis of Assisi, Pope Francis traveled to the medieval village of Assisi to pray at the tomb of the saint and officially sign the new document titled Fratelli Tutti. The encyclical was released to the public the next day, which was the feast of St. Francis. While the anticipation has been high in church circles since the announcement in September that a new document was on its way, there has been less secular interest in Fratelli Tutti than there was in 2015 before the release of Laudato Si. In many ways, Fratelli Tutti is a complement to the earlier text, building on themes Pope Francis has discussed in his writings, addresses, and homilies. The focus of Fratelli Tutti, the full title for which is On Fraternity and Social Friendship, is a presentation of a different vision for political and social life, one rooted not in free market capitalism or political populism, but grounded in the Catholic social principle of solidarity and the inherent dignity of the human person. It's a long document weighing in at 287 paragraphs. So while theologians, journalists, and papal document enthusiasts took to reading it first thing upon its release, most people have yet to explore the text, and many people may not know anything about it. Yet, it is an encyclical letter, which means it's an important Catholic document. Dan, you've read it. Where should we begin, and what should we know about Fratelli Tutti? Oh, have I read it ever. My goodness. I've read it and reread it, and we'll continue to read it and talk about it and write about it. It's uh, I'm, I'm living, breathing, sleeping, dreaming Fratelli Tutti these days. Well, let me, let me start with just three things um, that, I, that I think are good places to begin and what people should know. First is, what on earth an encyclical is? An encyclical, by its definition, it comes from from a Latin term that means to, a, a document, a letter, literally to be circulated around. It's a form of papal teaching, a form of papal communication that was popularized in the Middle Ages, and certainly in the modern era has become sort of representative of, uh, it's, it's the medium, it's the vehicle by which popes issue their most important, most significant teachings. So um, there's a whole line that dates back to more than a century at this point of church teaching by means of encyclical that focuses on the social teaching of the church. So it goes back, traditionally we say, it goes back to Leo Thirteenth in the end of the 19th century with his famous document on human labor called Rerum Novarum at the height of the Industrial Revolution and the dignity and value of work and of human identity and so forth. And basically every pope since has 
contributed in, in one way or another to this tradition. Laudato Si was Pope Francis's first major contribution in this, in this area, and Fratelli Tutti certainly builds on that. So an encyclical basically means that this is, the popes are saying, pay attention to this. This is for the whole world. This is really important. And not that other kinds of papal teaching aren't important, but this, it's, it's notable that it's an encyclical that form. The second thing is there. There are a couple of key themes we could we could unfold and uh, and kind of uh, break open. But but I would say that there's a one singular overarching theme to the document, and the way I would summarize it is this: that Pope Francis spends 287 pa- uh, paragraphs, which translates depending on the publisher to many 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 pages. <laughs> that are really worth reading. So I encourage all of our listeners to do that. But he spends all this time unpacking one central theme. And that theme is there is another way for us to live. There's another way for human beings to organize themselves, to think about society, to structure our politics, to relate to one another in community. And he uses very creatively the parable of the Good Samaritan that comes from Luke's gospel as a lens through which to view our current situation and how the most vulnerable, the most oppressed, the most marginalized in our world and in our local communities are treated today and how there can be another way. Interestingly, just a little footnote, Pope Francis's first pastoral visit outside of, of Rome took place in 2013 when he went to Lampedusa, which was the site where a number of migrants who were fleeing and refugees who were fleeing war-torn parts of the world by means of the Mediterranean uh, would often land in in the country of Italy. And it was interesting in the liturgy that he celebrated there to draw attention to the plight of refugees and migrants and, and those who have died unnecessarily because of these struggles. Pope Francis preached a homily that was based on, guess what? the Good Samaritan. So it, it's really a bookend so far of where his pontificate has begun and, and what he's reminding the world to think about today. The last thing I want to highlight is just you know something that I might call a continuing concern or an outstanding uh, issue that, that we have to name, we have to address, which is you know, the title itself had garnered a lot of attention before its publication. Fratelli Tutti is an Italian phrase that in its literal translation means all brothers. And it's an Italian translation of a Latin phrase that Francis of Assisi did use when addressing quite literally all brothers, his fellow Franciscan friars. Though throughout the document, Pope Francis uses an inclusive phrase, sisters and brothers, or all brothers and sisters and so forth, men and women. He, he does generally include all genders there, men and women. He nevertheless cites zero women as as examples in the body of the text, and he cites zero women by way of sourcing in the document itself. And that is, a, I say, a very disturbing oversight and something we could talk a bit about as well in greater detail. It's something that, that I and, and a number of my theological colleagues have commented on in a variety of publications and in, in talks. But this is something you know, that's notable because at one point earlier in the document, Pope Francis challenges various governments and societies to say, you know, in saying that we say one thing about inclusivity in our communities, particularly when it, when it comes to women and their place in society, and we do something very differently. You know, in other words, we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. Again, I think this is a mirror that needs to be held back up to the Holy Father and to the church more broadly, that we, as he did in this document, talked a lot of the talk, but doesn't show the walking. I will say as a woman and as a a feminist, I found that very disturbing. And I think a lot of that is structural. So if you're quoting yourself, you know, he's a man and he quotes himself a lot. um, And you're quoting other church leaders who tend to be clerics or men, then you're going to end up with a preponderance or an exclusively male sourced document. That said, I have to say that the morning that the document came out and and we had our news reports all ready to go, I was near tears with gratefulness for this document. Given you know our last two segments where we have domestic terrorists trying to kidnap government officials, given the contentiousness of this election cycle and at least one party's willingness to, you know, really be take extreme positions and the the racial uh, problems that we have in our country, to hear one of our religious leaders saying there can be a better way to live was really encouraging to me. I'm the first to say our religious leaders should be saying something about this. They should be leading the way. I think I've said it 
twice already on this broadcast. So to see a religious leaders, you know, really coming out pretty strongly and saying there's a very countercultural way we could be doing things different was encouraging to me. And I, I don't have as much familiarity with the document as, as maybe the two of you do, but, but one of the things that rang out to me was the ways in which what has been subtext is now text. And so in the last couple of years, there has been controversy around some pronouncements that the Pope has made around capital punishment. This seems to give a very strong and clear teaching that capital punishment is off the table. I'm also, and again, apologies and condolences to my friends at the Acton Institute, but it seems like there, particularly when we're talking about the sections on re-envisaging the social role of property and the universal destination of goods, there are really strong calls here that bring in and give Catholics a way to begin to speak against unbridled capitalism. It's been there in the social teaching for decades, but now it is front and center. It's no longer a matter of debate in one sense. It is really very primarily foregrounded in this document. I'd love to hear more about how these are going to affect the conversations in the church. Well, I can I can speak to that. And and for the record, I, I David always makes me laugh both on Twitter and in Francis Effect podcast conversations because he always introduces the folks at the Acton Institute as quote unquote his friends. You have no friends in the Acton Institute. <laughs> <laughs> and neither do I. And, anyway. And didn't some Twitter person say who died? <laughs> So, I, I mean, I just want to highlight three things. I mean, David, you you touched on one of them, which is the death penalty. So a, a number of years ago, actually, it was 2018, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith issued a, a, a document at the direct request of His Holiness Pope Francis to state clearly that the death penalty is is inadmissible. And the instruction was, it began basically with the catechetical resources for those who would be learning about the faith for the first time, which is the purpose of the catechism. The catechism is not the source of theology. It is not a magisterial teaching. It is a guidebook. It is an introductory text for catechumens, for those learning about the faith, or, or for most Catholics, a good quick reference guide. And so that was the starting point. The code of or the the Catechism of the Catholic Church was changed. It was updated to make it clear definitively that death penalty is inadmissible. It's there's it's never acceptable in Catholic teaching. This was codified in this document in Fratelli Tutti. And what's significant about the inclusion of this theme is that because of the gravity of an encyclical letter, this now carries the weight of social teaching and papal universal magisterial authority such that the, that the catechism itself does not, though a lot of people cite the catechism as if it had the authority that papal teaching does in other contexts. It's an important distinction, one that drives me nuts, because the catechism is like citing, you know, it's like as if everybody went and talked about their fifth grade mathematics book as as the authority on math, right? It's it's a useful tool, but it's it's not the authoritative text. text. This is. And so the, the book is closed. Just like abortion, just like euthanasia, the death penalty is very clearly stated as anti-life, as inadmissible, as intrinsically evil. End of story. Okay. Very significant contribution. Two other things that Pope Francis does in this document that are that builds on the tradition. And I should say, too, this death penalty thing isn't out of the blue. The Holy Father points out the, the, the trajectory in this document, including how John Paul II came very close to saying exactly the same thing. And he builds on St. John Paul II's declaration of the inadmissibility of, of the capital punishment. The other thing that Pope Francis does, not quite as definitively, but very importantly, is front and center the question of the so-called just war criteria in Catholic ethics. For about 1,600 years, there's been this developed tradition in Catholicism dating back to at least St. Augustine that has tried to think around, ethicists have thought around, in what circumstances would the launching of war be justified? And this became an issue back in the fourth century because Christianity became the state religion of the largest empire in the world at the time in which violence and war and soldiers and so forth were, you know, questions that were new to Christianity. So there's been this tradition, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century builds on it. It's something that's continued to play a role. But Pope Francis, again, builds on the work that going back to Pius the Twelfth 
John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, John Paul the 2nd, all these modern popes, certainly since World War II, since we've lived in an atomic age, have become more and more skeptical of the possibility at all of there being war today that could be that could meet legitimately the just war criteria. And so Pope Francis doesn't take just war theory off the table in the way that Pope Benedict XVI, for instance, took the theory of limbo off the table and said the Catholic Church does not support this teaching anymore, though like just war theory, it originated with St. Augustine as a, as a pastoral need, a theological answer to a pastoral need 1,600 years ago. Just war theory is the same thing. But what Pope Francis does is put on the table a question that theologians and bishops and perhaps future synods of the church will have to grapple with in, in, in more detail. Can we even talk about justifiable war in an age where biological, nuclear, uh, you know, other kinds of weapons are just so... There's no way to account for that. And then the third thing I just want to say that Pope Francis does, and that is a novelty, as it were, builds on an earlier tradition, is his, though he does not cite women, I'll reiterate that again, he does cite both Muslim and Jewish friends and dialogue partners, and does so especially with Muslim sources rather often, actually. And so I think this is important for us to think about in the spirit of interreligious dialogue, in the spirit of universal human solidarity and, and an identity of brotherhood and sisterhood. Heidi, is it too early to start talking about the reactions to this document? As you're looking out at kind of the national landscape, how are parishes, dioceses, individual Catholics, Catholic organizations, how are they beginning to respond to this document? Well, I think like we said in the introduction, it, it doesn't have the same sexiness or news value as Laudato Si, which was focused on the environment, which is an issue, of course, that so many people around the world are seeing as, you know, rightfully so, seeing as very crucial. But I'm hoping that maybe the timing of it on the one hand, made it get a little bit lost in all the other news. So I think it was right around the time that Donald Trump announced that he had coronavirus. It's right before the election. Um, so this is something that can be revisited throughout, you know, as we go forward. But the timing right before the election also, I think, had an important, it could be important, especially for Americans. And obviously, this is a document addressed to not just the whole church in the world, but everyone in the world, but Americans can take away. I thought the economic message was really strong and important given the decisions we have to make when voting. Our editorial at NCR on, on the encyclical said, there can be no mistaking the Pope's words, the neoliberal establishment is not compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, I mean, he critiques you mentioned, uh, you know, trickle down economics, unbridled free market capitalism, income and wealth inequality, libertarianism, individualism, consumerism, all the all the isms, and and so I just think a Catholic who's uh, wanting to think about how they're going to vote in this presidential election, if they're listening to their their religious leader, has to put the common good front and center, and I think that really is a counterbalance to the you must vote based on the legalization of abortion kind of message that we get. I'm a convert to the Catholic faith, and part of what was involved in my decision was the hope, the idea that the Catholic Church as a global organization could be a voice against the kind of excesses that I was seeing in capitalism and neoliberalism in, in, the, in the kind of rampant market structure where everything became a commodity. And I have been waiting for words like this for all of my life as a Catholic. And it's always been there, as I said in the subtext, but the fact that now there is a document which foregrounds it and says, this is, this is what we believe. I know that there's going to be controversy about it. I know that there's going to be pushback and people are going to try and parse the language or, or hem and haw about it. But the clarity of it was what I was waiting for. And it was a real breath of fresh air, particularly in a really nasty season of blows and setbacks. You know, I, I'm very, very heartened as a Catholic that this document exists. Well, you know, and I, I had mentioned some of the things that I think are, are uh, relatively new or that Pope Francis has uh, issued kind of a definitive perspective or statement on for church teaching. 
But I think the things that Heidi, you're talking about, and David, that you were looking for with kind of hopeful anticipation, these are things that are part and parcel of the church's tradition that go back hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, the the critique of capitalism is something that also was present in Rerum Navarum and and John, or I'm sorry, Leo the Thirteenth's encyclical letter, you know, in the late 1800s. I mean, this is something that John Paul II, who was a champion of the kind of anti-communism in Eastern Europe movements, I believe he won the Nobel Prize in part for his uh, his contributions in that effort. You know, which which is admirable, but people, particularly David's best friends over there at the Acton Institute, are keen to brush that away and to look the other way when capital gain is more of a personal interest, when power, accumulation of power, wealth, influence is is of personal interest, and in trying to do these weird contortions that I, I kind of think of as that you know that parlor game, that kids game. What is it? Connect, not connect the dots. What's the thing where you uh, twister? Twister, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Where you can, you know, you're kind of bending over things, and you, you know, instead of another person, you know, folks that David's referring to that are resistant are like bending over the truth of church teaching in its entirety, which which critiques both extremes, the excesses of both capitalism and communism. And I think it's a great reminder, especially just weeks away now from a very important election, that there is no singular economic plan partisan identity or ideology or political party platform that is exclusively Catholic. I mean, there's critique all around. So, of course, it's not surprising that we're getting a response from some of those corners of the church who don't want to hear this economic message or, or find it incompatible with their current political and economic beliefs. Um, but like Dan pointed out, they're now criticizing a definitive document from church hierarchy. That said, I just think it can it has the possibility of providing this this counter message that could be really something that people who might not be paying attention to what the Catholic Church is saying want to hear. And I'm specifically thinking of young people who grew up Catholic but who have for whatever reason have left the church or are not practicing in part because of the dominance of the culture war issues being the focus uh, of emphasis. So I I hope it's not too late that a message like this might be able to uh, really touch the hearts of those people. I mean, the question I have is, you know, how how does that get translated? Do either of you have thoughts about that? Because I'm a nerd. I'm a theologian. That's it's a professional responsibility and and hazard of mine to to read very closely these documents and to know the history and the tradition and to teach it. But the average person in the pew, how are they going to know this? I want to speak to that. I think that oftentimes there's a misperception amongst laypersons that a document like this would be inaccessible, that it's going to use really technical language or it's going to be really theological or it's going to be really boring to read. That couldn't be farther from the truth. My experience of reading these encyclicals is that they're they're written in common everyday language. They are footnoted so you can go down rabbit holes and find the, the references if you want. But the way that it is presenting the ideas is clearly organized. It's up front. It's in very kind of clear sections that have headings that kind of tell you what you're getting into. So it is a very accessible document. It'll take you some time to read it, but you don't necessarily need to read a distillation of it. You can go to the document itself and we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. So it is for the people. It's not for the theologians. It's for everybody. Right. And Dan, of course, the way it'll get to people in the pews is through priests who will preach it in their homilies. But I'm even talking about people who are not in the pews. And of course, how many of us are even in the pews these days with coronavirus? So I think that the way you get it to those people is through Catholics like us sharing it with their family and friends. So when the political conversation turns to, I have to vote for Donald Trump because the judges in pro-life, you could bring up this teaching. At NCR, we're really trying to pull together a number of resources that people can share with their sort of Trump-leaning family and friends to point out that the the totality of Catholic teaching is much broader. And I can give just one plug for those uh, clergy who are listening who want uh, additional resources and for everybody in pews or without pews or no pews at all. To David's point, because I agree that, that the document itself is very accessible. This is a hallmark 
Pope Francis is writing in, in particular under his pontificate, but I have written the introduction for the Orbis Books edition of Fratelli Tutti, which will be coming out in November. So there's a very substantive, about 9,000 words long introduction. So even if you don't get to the document itself and you want to know all the highlights and the important context, you can read that. But the document will also be included. And I agree with David wholeheartedly. It's in, it's very worth uh, reading. Although our colleague, uh, Father Tom Reese, a Jesuit, who's a columnist for a religion news service, in, in his kind of brief summary, his initial response to the thing, he, his first point was, this is not beach reading. Tom, I disagree. <laughs> well, as you're reading it on the beach or whether you're reading it on your laptop or whether you're discussing it over Zoom with friends, please, in addition to reading it, please pray about it. Please pray for the leadership of the church, but also for the lay people in the church. Pray for each other. Pray for our nation during this time. We're in for a weird few weeks coming up here. And so Dan and Heidi, I'm praying for you. I know that you're praying for me. We're praying for our listeners. So I'm just going to say bathe it all in prayer right now, because that's another piece that we need to be. We need to be uh, bringing, bringing to these conversations. And unfortunately, this conversation needs to come to an end because we're at the end of our time. Dan, Heidi, thank you so much for being with us today. David, thank you. Have a good week. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We record the show at various locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash Francis FX pod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Francis FX pod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. Likewise, our website is Francis FX And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing Francis effect pod. That's effect spelled the English way. E F F E C T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have more than six seasons worth of shows all for free on our website. You can go back and listen to. Heidi, Father Dan, and I will be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you very much for listening.